Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today is my distinct honor to have Kate Mangino with me. She has a doctorate in human rights and social development, and she's been working the last 20 years around social gender norms. What does that mean? How do people change around that? And she has a new book out called Equal Partners, Improving Gender Equity at Home. I'm so excited to have her on the show. I was telling her before we got started that couples are trying to figure out how to do this money thing fair. And what does that mean? And she's like, oh, yeah, we're going to have a great conversation. So, Kate, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me today. Absolutely. So gender, kind of like, I even feel my chest just like getting tight and nervous. And like, is this a normal response when we start talking about gender? And what does that mean? Yeah, I think gender, what was it before we used to say you never talk about sex, politics and money. And I think now you can add gender to that list. I think that it's a really hard topic for people to talk about. There's a lot of fear. And am I going to say the wrong thing and offend someone? There's a lot of, like, it changes so quickly, the vocabulary, that it's like, am I using the right words to describe this? And am I allowed to ask this question? Am I going to get, you know, in trouble for asking this question? So I think a big part of my work is just becoming extremely comfortable talking about a really hard topic. Wow, I love that as a starting off point. So what you're saying is it's really safe to have questions and to use language, I mean, maybe not intentionally hurtful, but like we're at a different places in understanding what language is appropriate and how to describe gender and gender experience and, and what that all means. Yeah, absolutely. And I, like I tell people, you know, when I, when I do workshops or I do presentations or podcasts, you know, I, I feel like there is no bad question and, you know, feel free to ask anything. And I think that we just have to be we have to be brave enough to ask the what's on our mind. And then we also have to be open enough to meet people where they are and, you know, not, not shame and judge and shut people down for having questions. So, yes. That feels really empowering. And I imagine that's not the, I don't feel like that's always the cultural message we're getting from the experts on these really difficult topics is that it's safe for you to be wherever you're at. It's like, it's so charged that it's like not safe to not be where the expert is quote unquote. Yeah. And I think it also depends what experiences people have had. If if people, you know, if someone is transgender and they've had uh, multiple negative experiences around judgment and people not understanding them and people um, being condescending, then they're obviously might not be open to any question. Really. I do think that we have to like, that's my perspective and it's, it's my comfort level. And I work more internationally than I work in the United States. And so I am met with a very broad range of opinions and perspectives and experiences. And I've, I've learned to be comfortable to meet anyone where they are, but I wouldn't necessarily expect everyone to be that way. 
Wow. So uh, that's something I would love to open up to is, you know, before the show started, I was talking a little bit about my own gender and money and equality. And then another part of my own story that I'd love to talk with you about too, as I think about my clients and all of this is uh, international views on gender. And I spent uh, three and a half months in the Philippines doing Mm -hmm. microfinance work with women. And, you know, like just a whole different gender money role and so i'm curious to get get your perspective on that but before we get into all that fun stuff how did you get to be an expert in gender like what what took you on this journey what experiences said this is where i need to go with my life i that you know that goes back way back my first job out of college was actually in tourism <laughs> no one's asked me this before but it was i was 21 uh-huh. I just graduated from undergrad and I got a job in Cairo and I moved to Egypt and I was working in tourism in Egypt and Israel and Jordan. And, um, I, w- I would say I was sort of well-read, but naive in terms of my own experiences. I'm from Columbus, Ohio. I came from a very, you know, sort of traditional bubble yeah. uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and, um, working in Egypt. I loved working in tourism and I liked my job, but the gender inequity that I was experiencing in some, especially in in, um, the smaller villages in Upper Egypt were life-changing for me, for a 21-year-old kid who had never really had seen that before. And so I left um, tourism and I joined the Peace Corps and I did gender work then and, and I've continued ever since. And in the early 2000s, when I went into the Peace Corps and became interested in gender work. It really was, it wasn't gender work. It was women's empowerment work. It was women in development work. And the focus was really on women and girls. And by the, you know, by the, I'd say the teens around, you know, between 2010 and 2015, there really became a big shift in the way everyone approached that kind of work. And we realized that working with women and girls is not enough, that gender norms can negatively affect everyone. And that we need everyone's work to really make a significant change. You can't just work with half the population. Right. And so uh, it kind of, it shifted dramatically. And I'd say the last, you know, eight to 10 years, there's really been a focus on gender work. So working with people of all genders, of all identities, talking through the fact that we're all socialized in some way to fill a gender role, which is we briefly touched on with you and what you felt you needed to do because being, you know, raised as a boy and a man is just as important as talking to women and girls about what they've experienced. Wow. (sighs) All right. If I'm not crying yet, I may be crying a little bit later because I have felt this for so long, but this is the first time that I think I've I've really felt someone address that is, you know, uh, rightly there's been a need to focus on women and and girls, but it's like that as a male, like, well, what about me? Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, selfishly or not, it's just like we've all been socialized into certain roles and that's inescapable and it's not all inherently bad either. But yeah, you know, I think one of the, that experience that it just always stood out to me and, I think kind of in my own journey of couples becoming a couples therapist is figuring out after having spent time in the Philippines doing microfinance work with women lending groups. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, well, how do the men feel about this? And then we're not talking to the men and we're, the men are not included. And the only explanation I got was, 
Well, we lend to the women or we set the women up because they're the ones that are more responsible to their families. Okay, well, if that's true, that logic makes sense, but we're still like, that doesn't seem to really fix the problem. No, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So for example, there have been microfinance programs and and other sort of interventions targeting women and girls that actually lead to increased gender-based violence. Because if you leave men out, they can feel emasculated and they can feel sidelined. And we have had plenty of instances where there are negative repercussions. And so nowadays, you, you know, I would say the best programs do include at least, you know, some component that would include um, men and boys as well. And I think it's really important to acknowledge that women and girls have been marginalized for hundreds of years and they are not, they do not have, you know, equitable access to resources the way that men and boys do. But that's why I also think it's, think it's really important to have like an intersectional lens and realize that it's not so clear cut as men and women. Like class has a lot to do with it. Education level has a lot to do with it. In some places, religion, ethnicity. There's so many things that play into who has access to resources and who doesn't. And I think gender is a very key component, but it is certainly not the only component. So for those not as familiar with intersectional lens, can we, to slow that down and talk about what does that mean? I I have some growing sense for what that means and I'm tracking right with you, but let's slow down. And what does it mean to truly look at ourselves and humanity through an intersectional lens? Yes. And I appreciate that you um, did that for me and give me that opportunity. I tend to get ahead of myself. So an intersectional lens it's, it's kind of a fancy word for a simple concept. And that is that each one of us on this earth has um, multiple identities, right? Like I am mm-hmm. not just a female. I'm not just a cis female. I'm not just white. I'm not just a Midwesterner. I'm not just, you know, it's not just my ability with my body. All of these things together come together to make up who I am. And if you look at me only as a woman, that doesn't tell my whole story. Just like if I look at you and you you are not the same as every other American man, right? Um, Right. And so you have to look at, you know, your experiences as a person who is black or Asian American or in the LGBTQ community or deaf or someone who uses a wheelchair, like all of those different identities, whatever they are, whoever they make up, these are not things that we can change. These are not things that we choose. These are like, I am born black. I am born a cis male, whatever you're born with. Is that all of us acknowledge that and realize that it's not as simple as putting groups into two buckets, Mm. that it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I'm trying to remember, oh, Kimberly Crenshaw. Sorry, I couldn't think of her name off the top of my head. She is the, she was a lawyer uh, and a researcher, and she's the one that coined the term in the 80s. Okay, so Kimberly Crenshaw coined the term intersectional lens, Mm -hmm. and it really is about trying to see people through as many different views as possible. And so sometimes we have those more externally identifiable factors, gender, and even that that is kind of quasi-questionable because how people identify their different aspects of gender identity are not always apparent by external as well as skin tone. Yep. And then kind of some like where we're born in the world, we have no control over what social class we're born in, 
what yeah. educational level of attainment, what traumatic history we have in our background. That that's something I'm adding, right? Is the mental health side oftentimes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what our parents' uh, mental psychological profile was really like is is a huge part of of yep. our own identity and sense of self. And then the different places that we go in the world and the access we have to go to different places all shapes who we are and how we see ourselves. <clears throat> and so coming coming around to working with couples and around money, and you're highlighting that trying to support women financially has had some unintended consequences, increased risk for sometimes violence. And so how do we, how do we help couples talk about their shared financial life together from your perspective? Well, I would say to do exactly what you've been doing, which is it's not working with men or women separately, but it's working with couples together. Now, not everyone is in a relationship, but for those people who are, um, it, it's about joint decision-making. It's about addressing a household concern, a household issue, and realizing that both of you have something to bring to the relationship, to the decision-making process. You both have different perspectives. You both see things in a different way. Um, and whether or not that's, you know, in our own households, in our own suburbs in the States, or it's somewhere in Africa or South America, I think the learning boils down to, you know, kind of some similar core values that we've decided whoever those two people are, you know, we've come together, we've committed to each other, and this is how we're going to manage our household affairs together. It seems so simple, Kate. <laughs> it seems really simple. <laughs> and yet we know that it's not so simple and helping partners collaborate around their finances. And this is not just for heterosexual couples, but yep. for homosexual couples or any other couple combination, polyamorous yep. couples, even um, the reality of money in the intimate relationship is ever present. Absolutely. And there are so many that, you know, before we started the pod, we were sort of talking a little bit about, all the assumptions and norms that you bring to a relationship that you've never really talked about. No one ever wrote them down. No one ever sat you down and said, this is how you're going to act because you've been raised a man. But we bring all of these assumptions to our relationships and they shift and they change depending on where you are and where you were raised and where, what culture you come from. But there is this mm, sort of connecting issue that men are providers in terms of financial providers, and you need to prioritize providing for your family in a financial way. And at the end of the day, if you have to just pick one thing, that's the thing that you're pushed to do. And whether or not someone says that to you outright in words, or it was just um, in sort of um, implicit messages that you receive throughout your life, you know, you take that stress with you into adulthood and you take that pressure. And that's what I need to do to be a good husband, to be a good dad. And I think on the flip side, when we raise girls, we socialize them to at the end of the day, if you have to just pick one thing, it's around domestic something. It's caring for family members, for children, for creating a home, a safe space, a safe environment. And I think that unless we are able to talk through these and talk through it with your partner, you know, oftentimes we just fall into default mode and we reproduce and replicate patterns that we've watched over the years. And it might not even be what we agree with. It's just, oh yeah, we haven't had a chance to think about it. 
Well, and I think that last part feels so on point is, and that's been such a large part of my journey into my work and couples therapy is trying to sort out, like, if I say my values are this, that men and women should equally participate in the home and the caregiving of the kids and so on and so forth. And then when I look at and take stock of what's actually happening in my home and listening to your book has really, uh, it's been provocative and challenging. And I, I know your intention is not to create shame, right? You're, if anything, it's probably to re- alleviate shame. And yet I've noticed like, oh, there's that shame gremlin showing up because I'm not doing enough or doing it right. And that's, I know that's not, your, your book is actually very generous and supportive. And so just as a conscientious male trying to sort through and do the best I can. And yet, you know, the funny thing is last night, even my wife is like, um, I really need you looking at our sixth graders power school for his grades and supporting me. And it's like, yeah, I, I do need to be doing that. And, you know, I'm not, and it's that the script beneath my beliefs is, you know, the, the wife, the woman will take care of the schooling and be focused on the grades and I'll get called in as needed. Right. And so it's, and some of that is the lived experience, right? I think that's something mm-hmm. that we talk a lot about too, is what was your actual lived experience for the implicit messages? And yep. my mom was much more directly involved in my education than my father was. Yeah. And my parents had a very conventional marriage in that way. He was the primary breadwinner and, you know, did, I think you talk about the book and, and social scientists delineate housework between inside work and outside work. Is that right? Yeah, that's one popular way that people have been explaining it for, I don't know, 10, 15 years now is that when couples, heteronormative couples or different sex couples, when they come together, um, the most common way that people break up chores or designate chores is indoor, outdoor. Another way is routine or intermittent. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. the, 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 The trick with this is that it tricks people into thinking, well, we, ha- we each have our own job. Like you have the indoor routine. I have the outdoor intermittent. Right. Equal, equal. We have two buckets. We're both doing our own stuff. And I think right. what is hard is that when you follow those patterns, and I can explain what they are if, if you like, but when you fall into those patterns, the indoor routine tasks are about two thirds or more of the total work. And the intermittent outdoor is one third or less. And so even though you do have two buckets, it's definitely not equal. And that's a way that we keep falling into these accidentally sort of perpetuating inequality in our homes. Yeah, no, I want to dig into this because fairness in a couple relationship is such a primary issue and what's fair. And couples are trying to sort through that. And they they're trying to value these intangible contributions in some ways. And they they do want to they want to tend to like, well, I make 150k. I'm making this up. I don't think it's ever quite this objective, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I make 150. Yeah. You only make 50. So that then entitles me to you know spend a little more freely and uh, not have to do as much of the housework because I don't think there's a lot of couples quite in that rigid of a camp, but they're probably it swims around in their brain at least at some level. Yeah, I agree. Or, and I will say on the other side is like I feel like because my wife is the primary breadwinner, sometimes like I need to be doing even more even if I'm working a full-time job because she's making more money and that symbolizes more contribution. And, you know, it's my own logic. It's, I'm not saying it's right, but it's, it's the stuff that swims through my head. And so that's, that's what I have to live with and 
you're right. working with and talk to wonderful folks like yourself to try to get it ironed out and straightened out in my head. So I share all that to say people aren't alone in this. No, absolutely. And I think that just like you said, oftentimes it just takes a conversation, but sometimes we're really not pushed to have that conversation. So I think it's a great question. It's never too late to have this conversation, but this is an awesome question to have with someone who you're considering a long-term relationship with. So listeners out there, you might be past this point in your life, but if you have kids, nieces and nephews that are like, you know, maybe like Gen Gen Alpha, Gen Z, I've got, I've lost track of them, but like maybe the 22 year olds who are just starting to think about long-term relationships. Like that's a good question to say, to ask them when you're both dirt poor, what does it matter how much money you bring to the relationship? Do you think the person, if we both work full time, 40 hours a week, but one person is making 150 and one person is making 50, do you think that the person making more money doesn't have to do as much in the home? Or is it about hours? Like this person to, to get this person as a partner in a law firm and they have to work 80 hours a week. That's just what's required of the job. And the, the partner works 20 hours a week. So how does right. that work out? So the people I interviewed for my book all both work full time. I okay. interviewed 40, yeah. 40 men, 40 partners. They all work a 40 hour week. And so I've kind of used that as a baseline and I've used their stories yeah. to, to help people figure it out. But, you know, if you have, if one of you is part-time, if one of you is a stay-at-home, you know, then you have to work out. I think it's interesting that you brought up the fairness thing because at the end of the day, it's whatever two people agree to. And I would never in a million years, I mean, having, I mean, I've been married for almost 17 years and marriage is hard. (laughs) (laughs) You can say that one again. It is hard. And being happily married is even harder. And it takes a a ton of work. And so I would like I wouldn't tell anyone to change what they're doing in their marriage if their marriage works. Like you do what right. is good for you. My book is for those people who are feeling like something's not quite right. There's a little resentment. There's frustration. There's something yeah, that yeah. I'm just, there's niggling, there's nagging. There's something that is unsettling, you know, but if you truly feel like we have a fair delegation and we both, there's no resentment that my partner pulls their weight and everything is great, then kudos. Like, <laughs> by all means, congratulations. By all means, congratulations. Tell me how you did it. Right, exactly. <laughs> right. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. Yeah, right. And I think that that's, you know, I think that's one of the beautiful things about marriage counseling from my perspective is, is less about me saying this is what's fair and more about creating a forum for the couple to talk about what's fair and where do their ideas about what's fair come yeah. from mm-hmm. so that they can actually get into a reflective stance about it. Because oftentimes where I meet couples is they're arguing over what's fair, but they've never really taken the time to consider where their ideas of what's fair came from. Yes. 
So you, people, people that aren't seeing the video of this, they're just seeing the hand motion. Kate's <laughs> really picking up on this and saying, yes, yes, yes. So yes, yes. what, yes. I totally agree. And I feel like a lot of this conversation gets stuck. First of all, this is a pretty new conversation. People haven't been talking about it for too long, but in the last 10 years, and we, when we have talked about it, I think it gets stuck in two ways. It gets stuck in nuclear families with small kids. Mm-hmm. It gets stuck in different sex couples and it gets stuck with delegating tasks. It gets stuck with like, who's going to do the laundry and who's going to take out the trash. And it goes so much beyond that. And I think that's what you were trying to get at. Like we have to talk about why we do the things that we do. Why do I prioritize the home? Why do you prioritize work? Mm-hmm. What do we value? Right? Like maybe I value a really warm, clean, orderly home with a couch that matches the chair. And the other partner's like, who cares? If you have a place to sit, it doesn't matter. Our values also come from the way we were raised. It comes down to class. It comes down to gender. It comes down to lived experience. And if you don't take time to sort of root through those, um, it's hard to really get to know each other on a deep level and be able to make, to find some solutions that work for both of you. One of the men I, I interviewed for my book was, I remember him saying, to explain the story. He said, I was a kid. I came from a rough area of town. I was raised by a single mom. We never had, we barely had enough food. We um, never took a vacation. He's like, I went to SeaWorld once, you know, that was my lived experience. My lived experience was poor. Mm-hmm. And he married a woman with a master's degree who had came from a very, um, they both are black Americans, uh-huh. um, but her family was very well educated and they took vacations to Europe and Hawaii. And he said, we came together and people might look at us on the surface and think we're the same because we're both black. And the, his previous relationship with was a white woman. And he's like, people would look at us and think we weren't. He's a people would make assumptions <laughs> about who we were based on what we look like. But he's like, our backgrounds were so different. And it took a lot of unpacking of each of us to share our stories and our backgrounds about our childhoods to think through, okay, what do we want to replicate in our home with our kids? And what do we not want to replicate? And he said it was all, it was really about getting to know each other. They had very different approaches to money because of their lived experiences. And, and that was just a really important part of their relationship. And I don't know if this is your understanding of the the literature, but as far as I've come to appreciate that, I don't want to say this. So I'm even noticing my own monitoring for fear of judgment for the way this comes out. So that not from you, but just from anybody that's listening. So sure, sure. anybody that's listening, just know I'm, I, I'm trying to get through this the right way. But my understanding of the, the social research is that class is actually a bigger differentiator than racial experience around money. So let me see if I can get this out a little more clear. An African-American family that grows up highly educated and a white family that's highly educated are more likely to have similar values around how they organize their time and their emphasis on education than an African-American family highly educated in a single parent working African-American family. Or same would be true for white, right? Like their experiences would be a shared social class is this is the same, I think is. No, no, no. I know what you're saying. I know. I think I understand what you're saying. I don't know that. I haven't heard that. I'd be interested in reading about it, but I haven't seen any literature on that. So I can't speak to it. I would imagine that even if you're looking at the same social class, a black 
family would experience racism and a white family wouldn't. So I think that that would be one difference, but yes, I don't know. I don't know. I'm sure someone's studying that and I would like to read that. If anyone's out there, send us the article. <laughs> yes. And I'll, I'll see if I can dig back through some of the stuff that I, I've come across. And, and yes, absolutely. That's why I was couching a little bit is because I don't want to imply that to a, a black doctor family and a white doctor family would have all the exact same experiences. Right, for sure. Yeah, no, I, yeah, yeah. So uh, please, listeners, know that's not what I'm saying, but that there may be far, there may be many more similarities there than across the class lines. And so social class just has such a large impact on our sense of self and what we can do or not do in society and who we are to society. And it, it really is such a large factor and, I think it seems like oftentimes we get really stuck on that, the gender, because it's more easily identifiable, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but social class and other psychological aspects often are bigger differentiators in experience. I, yeah, I, and I think that goes back to why an intersectional lens is so important, right? Because it can't just be gender. It can't just be class. It can't just be race or, yeah, or whatever religious. yeah it has to be a combination of everything yeah yeah mm. so what was the best part of doing the research for you for this book mm, that's a good question uh two things come to mind first of all i set out when i when i decided to write this book one of the one of my motivations was that i felt like in the conversation that was happening in mainstream media there was too much focus on what men do wrong, right? Like all the Harvey Weinstein stories. And I think that's great. You have to call out bad behavior. There has to be accountability, totally for it. And at the same time, we also have to talk about what looks good, what's right. Who are the guys that are doing it well? I have a son, he's eight. I don't want him to grow up with being scared of being a boy and think about toxic masculinity and being masculine means being toxic. It's not what I wanted for him. And so I feel like you have to have positive role models. And that's why I, so when I, when I went to write this book, I'm not the 40 men that I interviewed for the bulk of the book. They're not representative of society where we are. I'm hoping that they're sort of the positive deviance and they're representing society of where we're going. So it's looking for people who are doing something different and I'm looking to them to be a role model and to normalize, you know, different mm. forms of masculinity. And so because I decided to take an appreciative approach to my research, that was fun. I mean, I got to spend a year interviewing 40 amazing men and their partners and hear stories from them. And what I found is that, you know, all of these things that we think of as women coded for women, like women are romantic, you know, women love whatever, you know, and I would ask these men, like, tell me how you met your partner. Oh my gosh. They would like fall into these 45 minute stories. I mean, they (laughs) cried on the phone. We laughed on the phone there. They love their partners. They were incredibly romantic. They love talking about the birth of their children. They Mm. love talking about their experiences and how they ended up where they were. And so that was, I got to hear really fantastic stories for an entire year. And that was awesome. And then, you know, sort of that goes along with that is I sold this book idea in 
That's how nonfiction works, right? Like you sell a pitch for a book. And then once right. you sell it, you have a year to write it. So I sold it in June 2020 and it was due in June 2021. So it was during all the COVID lockdowns that I was writing this book. Right. And it kind of saved me. Like it turned into like therapy for all of us because we were all stuck mm-hmm. in our houses with our partners and our kids and there was fear and uncertainty and we were tired. And I talked to so many parents who were like, I'm sitting in the bathroom with the lights out (laughs) on the floor because this is the only quiet room in my house. But it really became therapeutic for all of us to just talk Uh and um, maintain a part of who we are and not just get it, not just turn ourselves over to all the work that had to happen in the home. So that both of those things, I mean, I just, I truly genuinely enjoyed the research part. Wow. That's incredible. And it is, I mean, I I think in having this conversation with you, I'm realizing how much internalized bad man, bad white man, especially that I've been picking up over the last 15, 20 years. Um, Not that I'm even looking for that, but it's just, you know, (laughs) it's endemic in the culture. Um, and, And to your point, right, there is a place for calling out problematic behavior and patterns of thought and and identifying and naming that. And at the same token, it's like, well, where do I go from here? And so that's the appreciative side and identifying what are those good things that we're doing and how do we magnify and highlight that and show the positive outcomes of that. Right. Like guys cleaning toilets and cooking dinner, not sexy, you know, well, their partner might think it is, but like, it's not, it's not being covered in the media, right? Because that's not clickbait. (laughs) Like clickbait (laughs) is who's in prison Clickbait is not who's cleaning their toilets and cooking dinner for their kids. Um, Wait, so your research says men cleaning toilets is a good thing? So, but I also have to say, well, there's not just me. There's a lot of research out there that shows that the more men do in the home, the better their sex lives are. Because, you know, like if there's no resentment, if there's no bitterness, if you feel like your partner is like 50-50 and they're pulling their share and your teammates. Yeah, right. You know, and um, Gary Barker, who is um, the founder of Equimundo and interviewed for my book. He's been doing masculinities work for 30 years and he's fantastic. He always makes a point to say, it's not an immediate one for one, right? I clean the toilets. I have sex tonight. If you don't, if you fold the laundry on Saturday, don't expect (laughs) Saturday night to be magical. Like it (laughs) builds over time. It's about establishing patterns. It's not a transactional thing, but there's plenty of research that just shows that that couple, you know, when, when both partners contribute to the income, both partners contribute to financial decisions, both partners contribute to household work and they truly see each other as teammates. And one person isn't feeling any resentment towards the other. They do tend to have heightened romantic and sexual experiences. Uh, And for me, I don't know if you're familiar with the body of research around attachment theory. Vaguely go ahead. So attachment theory, right, is the study of of human bondedness and growth, especially in intimate caregiving relationships. So starting with the parent-child relationship, and then how does that get internalized and then carried forward into your adult intimate relationships? And I think so much of that research points to this, this combination of words that you use, that it's really about establishing patterns, not just transactions, right? And attachment is a pattern way of being that's pretty predictable, and so when you get come to know my partner is going to reliably not just do the toilet this one time because they want sex with me, but rather like 
they do the toilet and they do the dishes and they check the kids' schoolwork because that's the balance of their responsibilities that works for us yeah. and it feels fair. And we've openly talked about it. Right. That sets, that's all this groundwork for being bonded in these other places of sexual intimacy, emotional intimacy, financial intimacy. Um, and so that's from the couples therapy lens. Oftentimes I'm working with clients that have ruptures in their attachment system, their ability to be bonded and consistent in their caregiving patterns. Interesting. And I would add to that. That's, that's really fascinating. And I also think that you need to get beyond, you know, I've, I've talked to people who think it's about like, you know, one person says, I'll make, I make a list. I make a list every week, but my partner doesn't do what they're supposed to do. And then the other person is like, I'm constantly being followed around by this Excel spreadsheet and I'm being nagged and I'll do it on my own time. You know, that right. if you truly have a healthy relationship, it's about both of you knowing what has to be done and both of you doing it without being asked or prompted. You might have to, you might need a little reminder once in a while, we're all human. But right. it's, not, it's not about one person managing the other person. That is a relationship that's more work appropriate and not necessarily home appropriate. Yes, I see that a lot, right? In my, and I think it's very easy. Many of my clients are professionals and have managerial responsibilities. So there's a hierarchical experience at work. Mm-hmm. And they don't shift mindset when they come home to an e- equality-based relationship. And at home, you're equal partners no matter what your status is at work. So you might right. be the CEO right. or the owner of your own business, and your your partner may be a stay-at-home parent. And, uh, right, wrong, or indifferent, unfortunately, society doesn't give those equal status. Right. Um, there's just different roles in society that get more social clout. Social clout doesn't follow you home. Precisely. And there are so many norms around work relationships and workplace hierarchies that allow work to continue, right? Like if you have, if you're supervising someone and they're constantly late to work and they don't do what they're supposed to do, you can fire them. You can give them a bad performance appraisal. You can not give them a bonus. You can cut their hours. You can whatever. There's like a million different repercussions that can happen from being an inadequate employee. There's, you don't have that when you're at home. You can't, I guess you can threaten to divorce them or, or leave yeah. them. But that's, that's pretty severe. And, um, you know, it's, it's a bit empty. And yeah. so what do you do on a day-to-day basis when that person, and I, I hear that a lot from the, the list maker, the cognitive laborer, the person who is mm. managing a home will say, I'm so frustrated. I keep making all these lists and they just won't do it. And it's, it's frustrating, I think, for both parties. It's immensely frustrating for both parties. And that cognitive labor piece is really so important in, in language that I don't know how many people have that. So can you explain cognitive labor? What does that mean? Of course. So a lot of people talk about the emotional burden, the second shift uh, concept we've been talking about this for a while. I think emotional burden or emotional labor is what is used most commonly, but I find that the word emotional is often coded as a female word and it's not always seen in a positive way. Like women Uh are, are very frequently, that's like a put down to be like, Oh, she's so emotional. Right. And and emotional is one of those things that a lot of people think is optional. Right. Like if I was more logical and I wasn't emotional, then more would get that. So I don't love the term emotional labor. And there is a researcher, um, 
Allison Daminger. She graduated from Harvard. And I want to say she's in Wisconsin now. Uh, she's a tenured professor up in Wisconsin. And she coined the term cognitive labor. And ever since I read her stuff, I've been using it because I think it most accurately describes what happens in the home. And anyone who's been a project manager in, in a workspace knows what cognitive labor is. Sure. You do have to cook dinner. You have to buy groceries. You have to fold laundry. You have to clean toilets. You have to mow the lawn. You have to do car maintenance. Those are physical tasks. And that takes up a ton of time, but there's just as much unseen cognitive labor around anticipating needs, schedules, calendars, managing, uh, and the bigger your household, the more pets, the more kids, the more, Oh yeah. You know, in-laws you have living with you, the more cognitive labor there is to do. And that's another thing that tends, Allison um, studied different sex couples. She, um, I don't think she's studied same sex or queer couples yet, but she says that in, in the four steps of cognitive labor, let's see if memory serves me correctly. It's anticipating, it's decision-making, it's evaluating, and there's one more, one which more. I'm, I can't think of it. Anyway, that in two of those. Shameless I think plug for Kate's shameless book. Shameless plug for Kate's, it's in Kate's book. Read her book. I should, I should know this. I'm sorry, Alice. No, 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 it's okay. It's okay. In yeah. two of those, in two of those steps, couples share it equally. And in two of those steps, women in, in the fee, the female in the partnership took on the right. lion's share of the work. And I, one of them was anticipating. Sure. So I just, that, that when it comes down to cognitive labor, it is also not equal. And that I think it, it boils down to this subconscious thought that we have that, you know, women are better at multitasking. Women are better at taking care of the home. Women are better with the kids. Women are better with social skills. There's nothing biological that makes women more capable of doing these things. We've just been raised to do it. We've been socialized to do it. We've been taught the skills to do it. We've been given the networks to do it and men haven't. And so we really need to shift our thinking and our structures and all of those mom chat groups need to be parent chat groups. You know, that's oh the way God. that we're really going to see a significant change. You're really speaking to my heart here. And this has been, you know, I think one of the big challenges too is I've said I've had many big challenges. So I guess I have many big challenges, not just one. But that social exclusion and trying to be a participating husband and male equally and then being the primary caretaker for my our firstborn stay-at-home parent in grad school, and I was excluded from the female groups and not included on the, the play date invi- invitations, not included on the birthday parties. My wife would still get all that stuff. And so those are those small micro things that create the imbalance and the concept of father as incompetent caregiver yeah, and and some of the pedantic language that would get used as if, you know, what I was doing was special. And Look, I recognize in one way it is special because there aren't a lot of men doing it. And yet it's that, you know, I don't want to be treated differently or special because of that, you know. And, and so it just, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry that you had that experience. And unfortunately, I've heard this from so many men and so many dads that, um, and it depends on where you live. You know, I've yeah. I've met dads in Burlington, Vermont, and they, there seems to be a thriving stay-at-home dad network in Burlington. Yeah. So good on you, Vermont. There are other places in the country where they feel very lonely and they feel like they are pushed out from the play date listservs and they're pushed out from 
the birthday party lists, it's like a combination of thinking that dads are buffoons and they're incapable of doing it, which is super hurtful. And then there's the other side of it is sort of this distrust in men who love to be around children. Like, oh, is he creepy? Is he a pedophile? Which is also really hurtful. Like, why do we have that? Just, I mean, think through that for a minute. Like, that's just um, sad. And so if women want to change, if women want true equality in the workforce and we want true partners in the home, then we need to let men into these spaces that we've created. And we need to share the resource because- Quite frankly, when I have a question, like if it's, oh, is tomorrow, is it, is tomorrow Dr. Seuss day or is that next Monday? Right. I text and I know within 30 seconds, I put it on my, my mom text and someone will get back to me and I can get that information so quickly. And a lot of dads are prevented from being involved with those resource networks. And it is a key factor in being you know, a parent, uh, you know, a dog owner, a house owner, if it's your condominium group, whatever group it is, you know, we just need to make sure that we have gender balance in those spaces. Yeah. I guess it it really is all of us taking stock of saying what groups really need to remain gender specific and challenging those assumptions. Yes. Um, And, and that's, you know, I think one of the things that's been refreshing and, and, more and more women pushing into the personal finance space and talking about it and being included in the conversation. And, and I realize there's still a long ways to go on that. But I think it, it's interesting that we, that it, again, I think what I take away from our conversation, Kate, is it's the language we're using too. Yes. Is it's, We don't just need to empower women financially. We need to empower men and women and people of all gender identity around money. Yep. Yeah. And I, I, I agree. I think that actions are important and I think language is equally as important. Well, language shapes actions in many cases, right? It sets the expectations for what's going to happen. Uh, this definitely warrants a part two follow-up conversation in 2023. So I'm going to extend the invitation and say, Kate, love to have you back in 2023. Absolutely. Absolutely. As people will actually probably be listening to this in early 2023, where can they get a copy of your book? What's something that you're most excited about in your book that people should be looking for? Uh, my book is available in wherever, you're, wherever you buy books, your brick and mortar stores, your libraries, your um, online retailer. We have an audio version. We have a Kindle version. So whatever, whatever way you consume books, we can, we can help with that. And I've recently been told, you know, people, if it's not at your local library, request it and people will, they'll get it for you. You know, if if book buying is not in your budget, um, there are other ways that you can go about that. One thing that I am really excited about that I love to talk about is that I think, you know, my book specifically does talk about partnerships and how to support equal partnerships, but that is, it's not just for people in those relationships. I think Mm. that it is for grandparents and it is for friends and it is for neighbors. Anyone who's listening who is a proponent of gender equality, I think will find something in my book that resonates. And I also have a whole chapter dedicated to raising boys. Mm. And that's, I have lessons sort of sprinkled in throughout, but then there's one chapter specifically to think about, you know, it's not just about focusing on people who are already grown up, who are already in relationships, who are already parents. We need to start with how we raise boys. And I think in the last 20 years, we have come a very long way in how we raise girls. I think we're doing 
a better job. I think girls are growing up to realize the sky is the limit, that they can do anything. I'm not sure we're raising boys to be different. I don't know if we're raising boys to be empathetic and emotional and caring and thoughtful. And I think we need, we have some work to do. So I'm excited about that aspect of the book as well, especially as I have an 11 year old daughter and an eight year old son. And so I wrote it for people who have kids in their life, whether or not it's their own biological children or not. That's great. Kate, thank you so much for committing your life and your work to helping us sort through as humanity what it means to have gender and gender equality. And it's, it's there's so many little fun nuances to it all. And I appreciate your dedication to sorting through it all to help us have clarity and, and guidance. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for your great questions and conversation. Absolutely. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.